Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, so we're going to go through chapter 16 today in Revelation, and I'll go through the first couple of slides. Uh, usually we skip over them, Austin, but we'll just go through them since we've got some, some new families and probably, I think, some new people watching online from around the nation. So the Revelation, we've been studying this. We started this the first Sunday in January, and we're just now getting to chapter 16. So that gives you any idea of how methodical we're going through God's word here. And I'll be honest, it's probably the most misunderstood book of the entire Bible because in the 404 verses, it has over 800 allusions to the Old Testament. And a lot of people in the church really, and myself included my entire life growing up in church, never studied the Old Testament. And so when I got to this book, like most people, you read it and you're totally confused and you don't really know what's going on. You don't really realize the difference between the church and Israel, and Israel and God's plan, redemptive plan for the world in the end times, that it's all about Israel. That's why Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. And when you really break down Revelation and you just, you lean on the Lord for understanding of it, it all makes sense when you, when you connect and you realize that the Lord said in Psalms 40 verse 7, in the volume of the book, it's written of me, and that's speaking of Jesus. And when you realize every verse in the Bible speaks of our Messiah, the question is, how does, how does it? Then Revelation becomes very, very clear, because the word Revelation in the Greek is apocalypsis, and it literally just means the unveiling of. So it's the, it's the opening verse, it's the unveiling of who is Jesus for all eternity. That's the question. And that's the question that this book answers. Who is he? Who is he really? He's no longer a suffering servant, washing our feet, dying for us. He is now the ruling, conquering king because he died for us and was, was resurrected three days later. So the whole book is about redemption. It's about who has the authority. And if you notice, as we've been going through this verse by verse, the authority is always delegated by God to angels or to Satan to do something, or in the chapters 2 and 3, to his church, to us, the bride of Christ, until we're removed in chapter 4, verse 1. And so it really answers the question, the one in which the world is accountable to, yet wants independence from. And so you see that a lot through the book. It's the only book of the Bible that promises a blessing in the opening chapter, verse 3, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. It's also the only book of the Bible that has its own divine outline in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 19. Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. In the Greek, it's metatata, or after these things. And those, those, that divine outline, chapter 1, is the thing which John had seen, which was the unveiling of who Jesus is in all of his authority. The things which are are the seven churches, the church age, and those seven letters in chapters two and three, we took one letter per week for seven weeks. They actually write out the history of the church in advance prophetically. 
in the order of which Jesus wrote them. And if he would have written them in any other order, that wouldn't have been true. But in the order in which they're written, they lay out the prophetic profile of the entire church age. And then the things hereafter are the things after the churches. So it's the unveiling of who our king really is, and it's really the culmination of all things. So there's the outline. Four things are corrected in this book. The church is back in our rightful home in heaven. Israel's back in its rightful home, the land which God granted to them back in Genesis 15. Jesus will be on his rightful throne, the throne of David. Okay, he has never taken that seat, but that's the seat that the angel promised Mary before Jesus was even born in Luke, that her son would sit on the throne of David. That's a political ruling throne that he's never set on. Rome ruled the world when Jesus walked the earth. And then all evil will ultimately be bound and cast into their rightful home, the lake of fire. So we've been going through from chapter 6 on these three groupings of seven judgments. And the first, chapter 6, took the, set, the six seals. And if you'll notice between the sixth and the seventh of each one, the structure that the Lord has in this, there's a break where God describes something else going on. So between the sixth and the seventh seal, it's an entire chapter, chapter seven. And then the seventh always unlocks the next grouping of seven. So that's why in the Jewish culture they call the heptatic structure. Heptatic is a fancy word for a groupings of sevens. And then the six trumpets. Then we had a five-chapter interval, 10 through 14, where we, we discovered a lot going on. And then the seventh trumpet unlocked the seven bowls. And we had six and we're taking all six of those today. And then there's, you'll notice it's very subtle, but today the break between the sixth and the seventh is one verse, and it's from Jesus himself, and then the seventh bowl. So that's the, the culmination of these judgments that God is pouring out onto the world. And so we're going through the last grouping of those today, the seven bowls. So chapter 16 opens up in verse 1, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast. Remember, the mark is from chapter 13. We studied that in depth. And upon them which worshipped his image. So the, all these final plagues, the final seven it says vials in the Greek. It really means a, a shallow bowl. So it's almost like the seven bowls. That's why the title of, of the message today is the seven bowls. It's kind of like a censer that you would put a, an incense stick in and let it burn that would collect the ashes. It kind of looks like that. But the final plagues are all against the beast kingdom. And it's interesting. There is a plague of boils that was predicted back in Deuteronomy 28 that to my knowledge, has never been fulfilled. But in Deuteronomy 28, 35, it says, The Lord shall smite thee in the knees and in the legs with a sore botch, that means boils in the Hebrew, that cannot be healed from the sole of thy foot unto the top of thy head. That sounds absolutely miserable. So th that is what's being poured out on this beast kingdom. And if you remember, it's on those that are taking the mark. So remember, all the way back to chapter 13, it's the people that are willingly and openly submitting themselves to the Antichrist and worshiping his image. So they've taken the mark, they've committed themselves to worshiping this false Messiah, and they are thus 
doomed forever from being saved because they've made their decision, their allegiance, their choice to reject Jesus. And we saw that in chapter 14. Now, the grievous sore, it only falls on those that take the mark. And what we're seeing is a separation between the Lord's people and those people that the, the whole entire book of Revelation has been calling the earth dwellers. These people that, whose roots are in the world, whose roots are serving the Antichrist, whose roots are against Jesus. And what you see is that's exactly what the Lord did in Egypt, in Exodus. Remember the whole Exodus event. So you have these ten plagues. And what I want you to notice is of the ten from Exodus, it's uh, chapter 7 through 12, the seven bowls emulate a lot of these plagues. And if you'll notice, all the way back in Exodus in Egypt, God made a difference between his people and the, and the Egyptians, the people that worshipped not the Lord. And so I've got two columns here. If you remember, the magicians in Pharaoh's court tried to replicate a lot of those plagues. And they were able to do the first two and then they tried the third, and then they never tried again because they realized, okay, the Lord's power is mightier than this black magic occultic power that we were using. If you remember, they threw their rods down. They became snakes, but Aaron's rod consumed them. Then they were able to turn water to blood. They were able to emulate the frogs. The lice they tried, but they couldn't, and they even admitted this is only from the true God. And then all of the rest of them, they didn't even try because they were so mighty and grievous on the Egyptian kingdom. Now, impacted Goshen. So Goshen is the area of Egypt that was separated for the Israelites. It's where they lived during this whole event. It was kind of their village, so to speak. And don't think of it as a, a small village. This was millions of people. This was a lot of people. And when you look at the number of them that that came across the Red Sea when you get to numbers and, and it takes a census of them, there were probably, there was about 700,000, 680,000 or so men of fighting age, but that's just men. That doesn't include women and children. So if you multiply it by, you know, I don't know, however, the average number of kids in this, this church is like six per family or something. So, you know, if you just think about God's people had a lot of kids, uh, they probably were up around two to two and a half million people that came out of Egypt. And if you've ever tried to walk as a group with families across, just even go to the zoo or something, you know, just try to walk around with two families of six kids. It, how do you keep them together? It's just unbelievable. That, that entire event was totally divinely inspired. But so impacted Goshen. So it's interesting. Some of them, the Lord specifically calls out that, no, he made a separation between the children of Israel and the Egyptians. Some of them it doesn't state, and some of them he gives a way to separate out even the Egyptians. So if you'll notice, the waters became blood. It's not stated necessarily if that impacted the Israelites or not. Frogs, it specifically says no. Lice, it's not stated. Flies, no. Livestock, no. Uh, boils, not stated. The hail, God gives a warning to the entire Egyptian nation that this will be so great. Anyone that fears the word of the Lord Get your animals and livestock and everybody, your people, under the roof, in a barn somewhere, in a, in a silo, in a hut, whatever, because this is going to wipe everything out. So he gives them a, a way out of that one. The locusts, it's not stated. Darkness, it was no. Remember, Pharaoh is gnashing his teeth 
with his people in the kingdom because it was a darkness that was thick. It was a darkness that could be felt. It wasn't just a darkness like you couldn't see anything. It was a plague. It's not just turning out the lights. This was God bringing a darkness over the kingdom that it even describes it in Exodus as they were gnashing their teeth and biting their tongues. It was so painful. That's a, that's a heavy darkness. It kind of reminds you of the, reminds me of the absolute vacuum in space, you know, that darkness. But man, if you were out there without the right equipment, you would be miserable. The death of the firstborn, he gave a way out to everybody, right? All you had to do is be covered by the blood of the lamb and you could have a way out. It's the same thing with salvation. It's open to everybody. There's a way out of the penalty of not accepting Jesus. It's just to be covered by the lamb. So these 10 plagues, they really emulate what's going on here in chapter 16 in Revelation. So 16.3, and the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man. Now, the Bible says the life is in the blood. So this is not life-giving blood. This is the blood of a dead man, meaning it's worthless. It's, it has no nutrients. It has nothing in it that's life-giving. And every living soul died in the sea. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. So get the order. First, the second angel pours out upon all of the oceans. So the oceans around the entire world become blood. The third angel pours it out onto the rivers that run into the oceans. So they probably will see the oceans turning, but still have clean drinking water for a little bit. And then the third angel takes that away. So you have this kind of, it's almost like a moving of the decimal point per se. It's, an, it's exponentially getting worse and worse and worse. And it just, it's almost like the Lord is saying, I'm the creator and as long as you continue not to worship me, I'm going to continue to back off as the creator and give you over to what you're looking for. You and I cannot imagine all sea life on planet Earth just dying all of a sudden. The, the impacts to your life daily would be, it'd be unimaginable. And then to have a world with no water. I mean, can you imagine people digging for wells, looking for water, trying to find something of thirst, and all they have to drink is blood? Now, it's interesting. We'll find this later. They wanted the blood of the people of Jesus, so Jesus is going to give them blood. It's almost like an, an eye for an eye, so to speak. But water is so special. And water, Jesus said, I am the living water in John and he, he is taking away the living water. And water is so unique to sustain life on the earth. It's so unique that he made an exception in the H2O molecule so that with every other molecule on earth, when it gets cold, it shrinks. Water is the only one that expands. And as an engineer, when you're designing something with steel or iron or whatever, some type of metal, you have to account for the fact that when it gets to a cryogenic temperature or drops below freezing, it's going to shrink. And so you engineer that in. Water is the only thing that does the opposite. And you might ask, well, why did he design that in there? Well, if he doesn't design that in there, then rivers would freeze from the bottom up and there would be no life for you and I on Earth. But because he put that exception in and the molecule expands when it's frozen, the ice floats to the surface, thus water can still flow below the ice. And so it's his way to keep rivers flowing. It's his way to make sure that life is sustained for you and I on planet Earth. 
it's the, the handiwork of the creator. That's all it is. It's nothing less than a miraculous exception that he wrote into the molecule. So in verse 5, And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and was and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. See, there it is. They wanted to, all these people that accept Jesus during the tribulation, that do not take the mark, they are beheaded. That is their fate. Now, some of them may actually live through the tribulation and go into the millennium. Uh, the Bible gives a few hints of that. But most of them are beheaded. And we saw that all the way back in chapter 6 with the fifth seal. Remember, the martyrs were under the altar crying for vengeance. And they were crying for Jesus to act. And he said, a little while for your, your brethren are not here yet. Because he knew who was going to accept him and who would not. So they wanted the blood of the saints and prophets, so they're going to get blood to drink. And it's going to be miserable. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. So they are worthy of this judgment. And they're worthy, it says. It's not a worthy as in, you and I are worthy of eternal life if you've accepted Jesus. You are worthy of it because he was worthy of it. They are worthy of something different because they've rejected the Lord. And so the Lord's judgments are true and righteous indeed. It's amazing when you, when you read Luke 16 and the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man that's in hell never argues that what he's receiving is unjust. He never argues that. He instead just knows what he should have done in this life to not be in that place, and he's begging for someone to go witness to his brothers so they don't end up there. But you never hear him say, Lord, this is so unfair. This is unjust. Why am I receiving this? He recognizes that at that moment, what he is getting is fair and just and true because he did nothing but reject his he did not appropriate Jesus' remedy for his sin to have eternal life. So it's a very interesting paradox there. Verse 8, And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. This is so, it's so fascinating to me. So one of the earliest forms of paganism is sun worship. That started on the plain of Shinar with Nimrod and Babylon all the way back in Genesis 10. And sun worship, the, the whole, you can look up the pagan mythology around Semiramis and Nimrod and his wife and, and how sun worship became legal under Constantine, which is why we worship today on Sunday. He named it that so that he would kind of try to be a toe the party line to please the Christians and the sun worshipers. So all the days of the week are named after a, a pagan name from Babylon, but that's beside the point. Um, but don't, don't get too hung up on worshiping on Sunday, okay? Sun, you don't want to worship the sun. Uh, but it is, it is one of the earliest forms of paganism. Nimrod's name actually means we will rebel in the Hebrew. It means we will rebel. And when you read in Genesis that he became a mighty hunter before the Lord, it, it, and men began, 
it says that men be, began to call on the name of the Lord in Genesis. Well, in the English, it's a little misleading, but in the Hebrew, it's men began to profane the name of the Lord. Nimrod was utterly against God. And the whole, every, every single form of paganism and occultic practice today is rooted in Babylon. And it was so prevalent back then that Job even argues in Job 31, verses 23 through 26, that why am I getting this? I did not worship the sun or brightness of the moon. And, wor- and moon worship was very prevalent. It's where we get the word lunatic today. So lunar, it's, it was, they were crazy. People thought they were just nuts. And so they called them lunatics. That's where that root word comes from. But the first battle, if you remember with Joshua, when they crossed the Jordan, the first battle that Jesus fought in Joshua 5 and after that, which Jesus led the way at the end of chapter 5, that's him speaking to Joshua with his sword drawn, and he tells him, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And Joshua remembers that from the burning bush with Moses, and so he takes off his feet to worship Jesus. And Jesus even says, as the captain of the Lord's host, I have, I have come. Well, he leads the battle into Jericho, which is why everything is turned upside down. They were never supposed to work the seventh day, but they did seven times as much at Jericho. The Levites were not supposed to go into battle, but they led the procession around the walls with the Ark of the Covenant. So everything is just literally flipped upside down at Jericho. But why was Jericho first? Well, Jericho means the house of the moon god. It was the heart of all moon worship in the land that Jesus had to get rid of right from the beginning. And so and it's, it's the heart of every mosque today in, in the Islamic religion is adorned with what? A crescent moon. And it's all the way rooted back to Jericho, the house of the moon god. But anyway, that's a little, there's a fun fact for you. Uh, we'll see later that these people, they even know the origin of the plagues because they are blaspheming God's name as a result of the plague. So look at verse 9 towards the end, which had, they repented not to give him glory. So they know the source of what's going on. They know that, okay, he is creator, he has control over this, but yet he is continuing to pour it out upon us. And they are just blaspheming his name the entire time instead of repenting to give him glory and to try to relinquish these plagues. So in verse 10, And the fifth angel poured out his vial, or bowl, upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. So just like in Exodus, when they gnawed their tongues, they were gnashing teeth. It was painful. That darkness could be felt. It was thick. It was heavy. And blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. So where is the seat of the beast located? Well, you go back to Daniel eleven forty five. This is what, in the beginning, when I was talking about how a lot of people don't understand the book of Revelation because they don't read the Old Testament, which is 77% of the Bible by word count. But Daniel eleven forty five, and he, speaking of the Antichrist, shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end. Yes, he will, by Jesus in Revelation 19, and none shall help him. So the Antichrist built his palace between the seas. It's between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. And right there in between, we talked about this a few weeks ago, is Mount Zion. It's the holy mountain that God calls his mountain, his holy mountain. He will, sh- he will set his king upon Zion in Psalms 2. 
all over the Bible. But Mount Zion will be the joy of the whole earth in Psalms 48, verse 2. Beautiful of her situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. Right now, Jerusalem is not the joy of the whole earth. Jerusalem is a, a bone in the throat, as described by Zechariah, for the entire earth. The entire world sits around tables wondering and plotting what to do about this little bitty nation that's a tenth of the size of the state of Oklahoma with a people group that are no threat to the world whatsoever. And the entire world sits around to go, what are we going to do about these pesky Israelites in this land of Judea? And it's just, it's been that way ever since the beginning. It's because there's a special anointing upon that land. It is God's land. His name is on that land. Yes, it has to do with the Jewish people, but it's not a war against them. It's a war against God. And he has given this land to Israel already, in fact, from the River Nile through Egypt all the way to the River Euphrates through Iraq when you read Genesis 15. So they're occupying this small little sliver of what ultimately will be their land. Now, will they get that land before the millennium or after when the millennium starts? It's not totally clear in the Bible. You could read Psalms 83 and then Ezekiel 38 and 39 and get a pattern of some wars that are yet to happen that the people around them will be wiped out, and that's probably when they will extend their borders. But that's, that's yet to see when that comes to pass. So God promises his people that dwell in Zion will not have to endure the Antichrist for very long. So Isaiah 10, verses 24 and 25, Therefore thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwelleth in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. That's one of 32 titles of the Antichrist in the Old Testament, the Assyrian. He's called the Assyrian here and in Micah 5. He shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt, which is interesting because God's going to pour plagues out on his kingdom like Egypt. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and mine anger in their destruction. So when you get to Micah 5, verses 5 and 6, And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land. And when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod, there it is again, Nimrod, all the way back to Genesis 10, in the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he come into our land and when he treadeth within our borders. So the Assyrian, we're, we looked at that all the way back in Revelation 12 with, a, with Satan's seven super kingdoms and Assyria and, and Egypt and Babylon. You just go down the whole list. But God predicted that his final world leader would set his throne in Jerusalem and that would also be the place of his defeat. And in Joel 3, 2, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. It's the valley of decision. And I, I love how the Lord puts that in the Old Testament because all of these nations are going to surround Jerusalem to try to wipe out Israel once and for all. They petition Jesus' return from Hosea 5.15. He returns in Revelation 19. The battle is chronicled there. We went through Armageddon. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I think, where the blood comes up to the horse's bridle. It stretches for 1,600 furlongs through the valley of Jehoshaphat. And then Isaiah 63 chronicles Jesus coming to rescue Israel 
when they're talking to him, wondering whose blood is on his garments. It's not his anymore. It's, the, it's his enemies. So we won't read all of these, but Zechariah 14.2, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity. And the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. It's interesting. We have a book that we don't have access to anymore. It's referenced by Moses in Numbers, and I think Deuteronomy, the wars of the Lord. And you read about that in the King James all the way back. But what's amazing is I, I'm hoping when we get to heaven that Jesus has a copy sitting on his, on his bookshelf because I want to read it. I want to know what battles he fought as he fought in the day of battle. So he, we know he's going to go forward and fight in Revelation 19. And you cannot imagine the ultimate warrior, the ultimate creator himself stepping down from his throne and going forward to fight on our behalf and behalf of Israel. He did it in Jericho. He's done it before that. He did it between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. He's, he's done it forever. But right now we're living in this age of grace, the church age, between those battles. And he's going to call us home. And what, is an, what do you do before you go to war against another nation? You call your ambassadors home. And that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to call his ambassadors, you and I, if you're in Jesus. He has to call you home. Then he goes to fight in the, that day of battle. So the earth dwellers are not turning toward God. And like throughout history, it frankly is, is simply a flee from accountability. When you get down to the root as to why people reject Jesus, it is frankly a flee from accountability. And I'm sure all of you, if you have kids, see this all the time, right? Something breaks in your house, and you walk around the corner, and your, and your two kids are pointing at each other, right? Well, it was her. No, it was him. And it's, what is it? It's, it's ingrained almost in your flesh to flee accountability. You know, if something goes wrong at work, how quick are you to stand up and say, that was totally my fault. I totally blew it. Uh, I'll take the blame for that. Or if you get into a, a dispute with your spouse, right? The first one that says, I'm sorry, that was totally my fault, usually can diffuse the situation right away and just deflate it and just take the air out of that argument altogether. But God has written his law in the hearts of man from Romans 2.15. It's why, whether they want to admit it or not, it, they know murder is wrong. Okay, And all these different things, stealing, everything, it's, it's an abomination because it's written into God's law and his law is written on their hearts. And so what's amazing, though, is that they need salvation to not be held accountable for their sins that will forever separate them from Jesus. So by fleeing accountability, they're actually fleeing into destruction. And they, they need to be humbled and hold themselves accountable to know that I need a Savior. There's no way I can pay this debt that I am owed, that I owe someone, the Creator. And so I need someone else to pay it on my behalf. So if you'll just be accountable for that and humble yourself, Jesus pays it for you. And it's amazing how they're fleeing that accountability, but it, it's fleeing right into destruction. In verse 12, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, 
that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now, this is interesting, the kings of the east. We'll get into that later on, I believe, but there's a multi-million uh, man army coming from the east. So the Euphrates, it's the cradle and grave of man's civilization. It was the eastern boundary of Israel. So I mentioned this earlier, Genesis 15, 18. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. This was before he changed his name to Abraham. So if you look at what God did to Abram and Sarai, all he did was add in the Hebrew a he to their name. It's a he. And what that means is the breath of God. That's what that letter means in Hebrew. So he turned Abram into a saved man by adding the breath of God, the spirit of the living God to his life and changed it to Abraham. Same with Sarai, just changed it to Sarah by adding the breath to her. And it was, he couldn't do that until they humbled themselves, themselves obviously, and accepted God as it was accounted to them righteousness. But from the river in the land of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. So that is the boundary of Israel, the river Nile through the river Euphrates. And what's so interesting is when you look at the plagues from Egypt, they were poured out along the river Nile. And then you have the seven bowls right now that we went through. What was the first one? It was poured out on the oceans and everything, but then you have it on the river Euphrates. God is literally bracketing the land of Israel with these judgments all the way back into Egypt to now. He's bracketing that land to rid it of the usurpers that think they can steal it from him. And it's amazing that when you really look at the, the land grant, the boundary of it, when someone asks about the West Bank, you know, just ask them, which river did you have in mind? The river Euphrates or, or the Nile River? Because God has given them two West Banks. Um, go to verse 13, Austin, there you go. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets. So here's that satanic trinity again. You've got the the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan. And so you have these three. It's Satan's, everything he does is a counterfeit, everything. So this is his satanic trinity he's trying to get the world to worship. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Boy, that is going to be a great day, and what a battle. So Satan is the father of lies and the accuser of the brethren. That's from John 8 and Revelation 12. It's all over the Bible. His followers and demons are nothing more than lying spirits that want to deceive you. When you read all about the Old Testament, when you read God over and over saying, flee from familiar spirits, okay, demons and these demonic entities, they have memories. They've been around for a long time. And it's, well, I've, I've talked to people before that will make a statement, um, oh, my dead grandfather, you know, came to visit me. No, he didn't. That was a demon. And that demon knows what your grandfather did. He knows what he talked about. He knows everything about him. And he's trying to lie to you. And you th look at Ouija boards, lying spirits. They're always liars. They are nothing but liars. And their goal is to make you unfruitful for the kingdom. And to keep your kids out of the kingdom. That's their goal. To take as many of them down as with them as they can. So in the tribulation, their lies and miracles will be so great 
that they would deceive the very elect if it were possible. And Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24, verse 24. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, praise God, it is not possible, that you are, you are exempt from this deception if you are in Jesus right now. And you need to tell your friends they will be exempt from this deception if they are in Jesus and your coworkers and your family members. There is a deception coming upon the world when this Antichrist rises up that will be so great people will line up to take the mark because he is going to show all line signs and wonders. If it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. But praise God once again that it is not possible. So here's the break between the sixth bowl and the seventh bowl, and it's Jesus. And he says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So it's just a small parenthetical one-verse break between the sixth and the seventh. And then the next verse, And he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. So here Jesus is imploring them to keep their garments. Now, we talked a lot about this in chapters 2 and 3 with the seven letters of seven churches, that your reward in the church, there is a pillar with a new name, a white stone with a new name. We went through the five crowns in the Bible that are rewards to you for faithful service. Notice the language, though. Blessed and keep their garments. So it's a different, it's so subtle, but it's different. See, it's a different type of saint. Their reward, remember the tribulation saints when we went to, from chapter 4 on, they're doned in white garments with palm branches serving the Lord day and night in his temple. We, on the other hand, as the church, are given crowns of gold sitting on thrones with Jesus as the 24 elders in chapters 4 and 5. So you've got to rightly divide the word of truth. And God, in Proverbs 25, 2, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing. The honor of kings is to search out a matter. So your duty is to search out these kind of things and to rightly divide the word of truth that the Lord, the Lord has a different destiny for the church than the people that are martyred during the tribulation. And he gathers them together to Armageddon. So Jesus is imploring them to hold fast. If you remember back in chapters 2 and 3, he was also telling us right now, Hold fast that no man take thy crown. Hold fast. Stay strong. Throughout the entire Bible, it's amazing how finishing strong is always the name of the game. David obviously did not finish strong. He finished with an adulterous affair that led to murder. Solomon did not finish strong. But the difference was Solomon did not have a heart of chasing after God. He had a heart of chasing after the world, and, and thus he's never spoken of in a, in a rejoicing manner. Remember Jesus in the gospel says, the lilies of the field, see how they're dressed. They're even greater than Solomon in all his wealth. But David, there's nothing bad said about him because no matter what happened, he chased after God's heart. He repented. He humbled himself. He got on his knees. He prayed for forgiveness. He cried out to the Lord. But Jesus will come as a thief to those in darkness. And look what he says right there in verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. When you go to Matthew 24, watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, 
he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. So if you think Jesus is returning next Tuesday, it's likely he's not returning next Tuesday. Uh, because it's in, an, it's in an hour which you think not. In other verses in the New Testament, you know, he says, they will say peace and safety, and then sudden destruction will come upon them. I watched a whole, somebody put together an entire montage from 2020 of all these world leaders using that phrase, peace and security. Peace and security. We need a one world government for peace and security. Peace and security. And you, and you watch that, and it's these leaders all over the world saying this in agreement. It's almost like they just read straight out of the New Testament and just said, okay, it's time to say peace and security because I guess the church is going home soon. But Armageddon, uh, the thief in the night. So one, one thing about that, the thief in the night. If you are in the light, Jesus does not come upon you as a thief. And, and it's all about the mission statement that Cody so eloquent, eloquently wrote into the, the podium here. I'm still blown away by it, Cody. Uh, to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride for Jesus' return. And it's a, it's a bride of Christ that is ever looking for the Messiah to take us home from 1 Thessalonians 4. When that trumpet sounds and we meet him in the air to forever be with the Lord. See, if you're looking up, you're looking for Jesus Christ, not Antichrist. You're looking for how can I serve Jesus today in what he's entrusted me with instead of how can I get more of this world so that I have some status or some symbol or people look at me in a different light or I've got something to leave to my children. Jesus does not want you looking left and right. He wants you looking up. He wants you to look for there is going to come a day, whether it's in our lifetime or not. I turned 40 in March. So if I'm blessed, what, I've got 60 years left at the most? I don't know. Uh, Doc maybe has some kind of medicine that will make me go to 110 or something. I don't know. But I've got, I don't have that much time left, and neither do you. If it's 72 is the average age, right, in America of, of mortality. So if I hit the average, I've got 32 years left. And all I know is that when I die, when any of us take our last breath, whether the rapture happens before or not, you are going to stand before your creator and be held accountable for what did you do with what he entrusted you with. And if you are looking at how can I get more of this world, you're going to be sorely disappointed. This world is not going to last. And Peter talks about as the, fervent, the elements will melt with a fervent heat. So he, there's going to come a time when he lets go and that new heaven and new earth are created. The only thing that you get to take with you into the new heaven and the new, the new earth is what you did in the spirit here for him, to glorify him. So Armageddon, it simply means Mount Megiddo, and a lot of battles have taken place there throughout the Bible. Uh, Jabin, Gideon, Samson, Barak, and Deborah, Pharaoh Necho, on and on and on throughout the Bible. Napoleon, when he was marching across the Middle East, stopped at Mount Megiddo and looked across the Valley of Jehoshaphat and said, this is the greatest place to hold a battle on planet Earth, and there will be the final battle held there. But in the Hebrew tongue, it means Har Megiddo. It just means Mount Megiddo. That's all it means. But when you hear, remember the movie with Bruce Willis, Armageddon? You know, people have this, this culture has put in our minds that Armageddon is a horrible thing. 
It just means a mountain, just like apocalypse in the Greek just means the unveiling of. But it's, it, they have this negative connotation with it because it's where Jesus is going to beat them all up and just conquer them. And so they see it as this really bad place, but it just means a mountain. And he's going to step foot on that mountain and take care of it for us on our behalf. So 1 Thessalonians 5, the thief in the night. But at the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I would write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, here it is, peace and safety. Just go search on YouTube for the world leaders saying peace and security. It's amazing. Then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travel upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in the darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. In other words, you should not be surprised because you know your Bible so well that you know the prophetic signs of when Jesus is going to take us home that it's not surprising to you. Israel had to be back in the land. So a lot of people in World War II, when Hitler was taking over the world, so to speak, a lot of people thought he was the Antichrist. But those that knew their Bible said, no, there's no way he can't be. Israel's not in the land. And God's word is literal. He means exactly what he says. And then May 14th, 1948, what happened? They became a nation again. As Isaiah says, can a nation be born in one day? Ye are all children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Praise God. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. It's amazing in the Garden of Gethsemane that the disciples couldn't even stay awake for one, one night to pray with Jesus. Remember, he keeps going to them and they're sleeping. They couldn't even be watchful for one night. And it's an indictment. It's a lesson for all of us as the church to be vigilant, to be watchful for Jesus, to stay awake. Don't be asleep like the rest of the world. The churches that there are lots of churches all over the world that are asleep right now that do not want to teach the word of God. And they're just asleep. And as a result, the people that are in them are asleep. And it's not to call out any one specific church, but if you're not equipping your people to go out into the world and to do battle, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, darkness, rulers in high places, the spiritual battle that they fight every day, the only weapon is the word of God. So you've got to get into it. So for they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation, for God hath not appointed us to wrath. And ever since chapter 6 on, it's nothing but the wrath of God, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do." So the last couple of verses. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of the heaven, of heaven, from the throne, saying, It is done. So the final judgment, it's interesting, the final judgment of the entire book of Revelation is on the air. Who is the prince of the power of the air? From Ephesians 2, where in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. It's Satan. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And it's amazing. God's final judgment is poured out on Satan, on his, on his where he is. He's trying to rule the air right now. 
And he does. Remember, we took Jesus to the temptation in Luke. He showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth and said, these will be yours if you just worship me. He could not have offered him that if it wasn't true. And he is. He is the ruler of this world right now, but not for long. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth. That's got to be a massive earthquake. So mighty an earthquake and so great. So there's been a, a lot of earthquakes in the world, but this one will be unlike any other. And the great city, that's Jerusalem, was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. So after this final judgment, Babylon will come into remembrance to God. And the next two chapters, Revelation 17 and 18, are all about his judgment upon a literal Babylon. And so next week we'll start going through that. It's prophesied in four other chapters in the Old Testament, Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 50 and 51. But this earthquake is going to make every island and mountain flee which is amazing. That's got to be quite a shaking to take mountains down. In the final verses here, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. So this hail, what was the penalty in the Bible for blasphemy? Go all the way back to Leviticus 24, 16, and it's stoning. And what's God doing? He's literally stoning the earth with hailstones that are about 120 pounds. And that's about the weight of a talent, about 120, maybe 130 pounds, maybe 110, somewhere in that range, depending on what talent you use. In Babylon, the talent was a little different than in Israel. Uh, my guess is it's around 120 pounds. If you've ever tried to pick up a 120-pound dumbbell just with your arm, you realize how much mass and weight is there. It's a lot. Well, imagine that taking it at terminal velocity coming through the atmosphere and crashing into earth. It, it's going to do a lot of damage. And people are going to be absolutely hating God because of his stoning. And it's because they keep blaspheming him. If they would stop blaspheming, he, may, he maybe wouldn't do this anymore. But these stones, when you read Job, the book of Job, it's one of my favorite books of the entire Bible. And a lot of people look at me like I'm crazy when I say that. Because it's, it's kind of like... There's this great guy that none were more righteous than Job, and yet all of these horrible things happened to him. So what is going on? It's an extreme example of God showing you that anything that comes upon you is father-filtered. Anything that comes in your life is father-filtered. God set the bounds with Satan in Job chapter 1. And he tells him, okay, you can take everything he has, but you can't touch him. And Satan has to obey, and that's what he does. Then he says, comes back, well, of course he's still praising you. He's got his health. Okay, you can take his health from him, but you cannot kill him. And Satan has to obey then again. So it's a lesson for you that no matter, if you are in Jesus, no matter what comes upon you, it is filtered through God. The question is, why does he let something come upon you? Well, it's to make you and shape you more and more and more into his image. 
it's for Job in that entire book, it's at the very end when you see the dialogue from chapter 38 on between God and Job, he had some pride in his life that he had to work out. See, Jesus always plays the long game, always. And his long game is a lot, a lot, a lot longer than the uh, 72 years we're given in this life. But these hailstones, what I love, you can get a lot out of the science quiz the Lord gives Job at the very end here. Just I'll give you one quick example. In Job 38, it's not up there, but he asked Job, can you bind together the sweet influences of the Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? And so God is, is giving him the science quiz as creator, and now Job obviously is sitting there going, why, no, I cannot. I cannot bind together stars in heaven. Well, it's amazing. When you look at stars at the night sky, most of them are so far apart, they, they have no gravitational influence on one another. Their mass is too far apart. They have an electromagnetic field that influences one another. But there's one grouping of stars called the Pleiades in our galaxy that are close enough, they are actually bound together by gravity. Now, how did God know that, or how did Job know that? Well, obviously he didn't, but the Lord did, all the way back in Job 38, saying, can you loose the bands? Can you loose those Pleiades? No, you can't. And we didn't find that out until, I think it was about four or 500 years ago, they discovered that. But modern science always confirms the Bible, period. But what I love is this has not been discovered yet, but in Job 38, God says, Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow, or hast thou seen in the treasure the treasures of the hail, which I have reserved against the time of trouble, that's the tribulation, against the day of battle and war? So God has these hailstones of one talent each somewhere stored up, waiting for that day to pick them up and start pl- just pummeling the earth with them, but he's got them somewhere, and he's asking Job, have you seen it? Have you entered into it? You haven't. You haven't entered into that treasury of snow that I've reserved against the day of battle when I'm going to go to fight on behalf of my people. So it's pretty amazing. So that closes chapter 16. Next week, we'll take up chapter 17 and start getting into mystery Babylon, who is Babylon, what's going on with Babylon, because after the seventh bowl, God then judges Babylon because it comes up to remembrance to him. So if you are in Jesus, this is my challenge for you every time, every week. Get into the word of God. And the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And whether you think it or not, it will refine and shape your life. And it's what I generically call the trinity of faith. Hebrews 11.1, what is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and when you think about it, why is faith important? Hebrews eleven six. for without faith, it's impossible to please him. So you better know how to go get it. And that's Romans 10, 17. If you can't please God without faith, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So to get into the word of God, that's the only way to build your faith. And that faith is then used to serve him. And it will refine and wash over you every day in your life. You'll have things in your life that you didn't even know you needed to submit that you'll find yourself submitting to the Lord because you are literally in the presence of the author of creation himself when you sit down and you open up the word of God. And if you're watching this online and you don't know the Lord, it's simple. It's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. The thief on the cross just admitted 
that he needed a savior. He cried out to Jesus and he was saved. He could do nothing afterwards. He couldn't go get baptized. He couldn't do good works. He couldn't give to the poor. All he could do was hang on the cross and accept the salvation that Jesus had prepared for him. But what's amazing is that testimony has echoed for the last 2000 years throughout eternity because people on their deathbed are given a testimony of a man that could do nothing except cry out to Jesus from that one example as the thief on the cross and they come to know the Lord. It's amazing how many people have come to know the Lord just by that one act of obedience that he had no idea. He had no idea that almost 2,000 years later, someone in, in Oklahoma City would be on their deathbed and come to know the Lord because of that story. It's incredible. And all the Lord wants is your heart. That's it. All he wants is you. He doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your, your job. He doesn't need resources. All he wants is an obedient spirit, an obedient heart to say, Lord, today I trust you. Tell me what to do. And he's going to lead you down a path that you never saw coming. I promise you that he will take you places and ask you in radical ways, do you trust me? You just have to give it to him and let him walk you through it. So Isaiah 118, we'll close with this. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's what happens when you come to know the Lord. So if you need salvation, if you're here and if you need salvation, come see us, we'll pray with you. If you're watching this online, reach out to us. Our email address is on the YouTube channel. Uh, reach out to us, we will, we will help you. We'll pray with you. So with that, I'll close us in prayer. Thank you, guys. Lord, we just thank you so much for New City Church. God, I thank you for all of the families that you're knitting together as an unashamed bride looking for your return and to prepare, like you told us last October before the church started, Lord, like you stepped in the room and shared Jesus. You said everything this church does will be to further build that new city, that new Jerusalem that you left in John 14 to go prepare for us. So we thank you that we get the opportunity, the esteemed privilege to serve you and to be a small part, however integral it is, Lord, in building your future kingdom that we get to rest in with you. So thank you, God, for this time together. Lord, we just pray a special blessing again upon Kathy's daughter. Lord, be with her and wrap your arms around her. Let that baby be whole and fearfully and wonderfully made in the womb, Lord, where you knit every one of us together. Lord, thank you for writing our names in the Lamb's Book of Life before we were ever born. God, we thank you for the promise of eternal salvation. God, we thank you for this time together. Be with us in the week ahead, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.